0: That it's a priority domain. Space is a priority domain, which is great from the standpoint that, you know, they're they're not ignoring space as a as a problem set. But if you look at the Trump national security strategy, it uses a phrase something like uh, a vital national interest. So a priority versus a vital national interest show a big, big chasm in differences of views of how what space is and how important it is.
1: From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hey there, podcasters. This week, we're talking about the Biden administration's national security strategy and what it means for U.S. space security policy. In space terms, you can kind of think of the national security strategy like NASA's Space Launch System, or SLS. That's the rocket and capsule duo NASA's using for the Artemis program to return Americans to the moon. Both the security strategy and the SLS rollouts have been notable for huge delays, and both are admired for their goals and the integration of allies and friends, while at the same time, they're both dogged by critiques that call out the means to reach those goals as not quite suited for a great power competition with China. And through this episode, just hang on to that word competition. It appeared 44 times inside the strategy document. The phrase vital interest appears a mere handful of times, and only once was it connected to something specific, and that was the Indo-Pacific region, not space. To unpack just what the strategy means and doesn't for space as a region and a warfighting domain and for our space-based critical infrastructure— I spoke with Chris Stone, who's a regular on the podcast. He's a book author and a senior fellow for space studies at the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. Here's our conversation. Hi, Chris. Thank you for making the time to come back for a quick chat about the just released national security strategy and what it means and doesn't for defense and space.
0: Thanks very much. Appreciate you uh, having me back.
1: But first, Before we get into the subject, for those new to the podcast, please introduce yourself and don't forget your book.
0: Okay, great. Well, my name is Christopher Stone. I am the Senior Fellow for Space Studies at the Mitchell Institute Space Power Advantage Center of Excellence in the Washington, D.C. area. Um, I work on various topics related to Space Force, U.S. Space Command, and strategy as a whole. And as you mentioned, I am the author of a book called Reversing the Tau, a framework for credible space deterrence that is on Amazon and has been out for a few years. And uh, I think it's sadly still still a relevant read given what's been going on.
1: The strategy document that we're talking about today is 48 pages long and at the top President Joe Biden writes that this national security strategy outlines how his administration will, quote, seize the decisive decade to advance America's vital interests, unquote. And he goes on to write, quote, we are in the midst of a strategic competition to shape the future of the international order. Now, in space, and to bring the audience up to speed, What does that mean? Because starting from the lowest orbit on up and beyond even the moon, there is competition. Chris, set the scene.
0: Well, yeah. So that that is a correct statement in that we are in a uh, great power competition um, between our pacing threat as the documents usually uh, call China and then Russia as well. And then obviously there are some other Other countries like Iran and North Korea that are still, you know, creating problems, but have also reached out into space in some capacity, not quite to the level and extent as China or Russia, obviously, but still, you know, they have the ability to do some some threatening activities um, against U.S. space and allied space capabilities in orbit. So uh, with regard to competition, um, as most strategists would understand, we have these things called instruments of national power. And sometimes they're articulated in an acronym called DIME, and that DIME stands for Diplomatic Information Military and Economic. Sometimes you'll see C for culture um, added on there as part of the, the influencing aspects of things. But uh, for the most part, those are the main instruments of power and space power inter interlocks and underpins each and every one of those. And most people don't understand that. And if they do, they think it's mostly just a a support function um, of like, oh, we provide communication or we provide um, GPS signals to navigate ships, airplanes, and cars and things of that sort. And that's true, but there's a lot more than that. So, um, for example, um, we have satellites that uh, that do critical functions that are that we're reliant upon for our entire economy. Um, Our society runs off space, regardless of, of what you do for a living, whether you live in DC and work space issues like me, or you live on a farm in the middle of Nebraska, you experience and leverage space on a day to day basis, and you may not realize it. And so as a result. Uh, of that interdependency with critical infrastructure on earth and our economic instruments, our agriculture, our transportation, our energy sectors, everything is tied into space networks up in orbit. Now we have multiple orbits that go out to 22,000 some odd miles out, the low earth orbit up to geostationary uh, earth orbits. And then we have uh, also exploration uh, that are part of prestige and other aspects of of the strategic environment that we deal with among nation states uh, on earth, so the United States is pretty much the only country that has sent um, spacecraft out to every planet in the solar system some some of the asteroids, and we still have a couple operating in interstellar space, the Voyager probes that were launched in the late seventies so we we have some some you know warm fuzzies to be happy about but that is you know past, and in order to maintain that kind of leadership and, and superiority if you will against potential threats and adversaries competition requires you have the the means as you mentioned um as well and it also means you have to understand risk which is also uh, has been added in a lot of strategic discussions to ends ways and means but also the risk what, risk of inaction risk of action and you have to consider all the above
1: And just to take this a little further when we're talking about competition, I mean, China has an active footprint on the moon, and it's also at Lagrange Point 1. Um, If you could just take a second and and explain why Lagrange Point 1 and why having a footprint on the moon uh, is important.
0: Well, yeah, the the Chinese have been... Speaking and demonstrating by actions, um, their intent to be a, a full-fledged space power, and not just any sp- space power, but the leading space power. And that means understanding that cislunar space is not just some pipe dream for the future. It, it is a now issue. And as you mentioned, they have a uh, communications relay satellite in L2, which is on the far side of the moon uh, relative to the Earth. Um and as a result of that, they have the ability to maintain communication with their spacecraft on the lunar surface as well as in orbit uh, with the Earth. Whereas typically in the past, like in the Apollo era or in current systems today that we have around the moon, like the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, once it flies around the backside, we lose communication and telemetry until it comes back around uh, the the backside. So the Chinese don't have that situation now. They are the first country to land a A rover on the far side because of that communication relay capability and it also um, enables them to potentially look for for new resources and as we saw in the news they they found um, a mineral that's related to the helium-3 fusion dream that a lot of lunar advocates have been have been pushing for decades and uh, they they have demonstrated their and articulated their interest in the moon and beyond um, for not only a presence standpoint but what they call space dominance, and that is their words, and uh, that is something that I think should be taken very seriously.
1: Now, the ingredients that make a strategy to quote Carl Bilder include means, ends, and some concept of how those means and ends are related. In the space domain, what are the means and ends you found in the national security strategy document?
0: Well, um, first an observation. You, you, I know that our listeners and you might have read that um, the House Armed Services Committee Chairman Adam Smith was recently asked what he thought of the of the document, and he said that it's basically no big deal. It's it's essentially the same as the Trump administration strategy, and I would totally disagree with that. Um, if you look from the space standpoint, I mean, well, let me back up. Obviously, it it, it references great power competition, and that's similar. Um, but when it comes to space specifics in the strategy, which is about a paragraph and a half, um, you can see a totally different focus on on this national security strategy of the Biden administration versus the Trump administration. Some of the the ways and means are 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 the, the big example. So first off, when you look at the paragraph, it it speaks primarily and in, in the preceding frameworks document, that that it's a priority domain. Space is a priority domain, which is great from the standpoint that you know they're they're not ignoring space as a as a problem set. But if you look at the Trump national security strategy, it uses a phrase something like uh, a vital national interest. So a priority versus a vital national interest show a big big chasm in differences of views of how what space is and how important it is. Um, they speak about uh, norms. They speak about um, the sustainability, security, safety of the domain. So it's very much a focus on space as an environment, not so much as the threats facing the U.S. critical infrastructure in orbit and beyond and what our adversaries are doing there. It also speaks to um, the importance of a space traffic coordination system, which has been a a topic since the late Obama administration when the small satellite constellations, the mega constellations that we're starting to see become a reality now were on the drawing boards and people were talking about how do we do what's called conjunction avoidance or how do we prevent satellites from crashing into each other like we saw in I believe it was 09 when Iridium and Cosmos crashed together and created a bunch of debris. And so they're very much focused on the debris issue. They're very much focused on the security of the domain in the sense of the environmental security of the domain, not so much on the threats facing our critical infrastructure and our strategic priorities in that domain.
1: Let me just jump in, though, for a quick second. I mean, the one thing, though, about norms and rules of space behavior I mean in in a sense that if the various space-faring nations were to sign up to norms of behavior I mean wouldn't that also make it less easy for you know miscalculation for misconception of what a satellite is doing and what it's not
0: doing well I'll I'll first say that you know I'm not opposed to norms and I'm not opposed to people pursuing norms what I'm what I'm showing in in my statement um uh, before was that um, when it comes to protecting and defending, as as they as the phrase it that, that is sort of you know used nowadays, um, or to deter, um, norms are not a deterrent, and you can have all of your friends and allies agree that shooting something in orbit and creating debris is not a good thing, but that doesn't necessarily stop the adversary from developing the means to do so, or Have the will to use such weapons and threats and both China and Russia have articulated their willingness to use kinetic interceptors ground-based or space-based to destroy vital national um, critical infrastructure like the GPS constellation which just about everything relies on either the navigation or timing signals of or satellite communication which is important for our military command and control Um, so it's I wouldn't say it would prevent miscalculation Um, And I'm not as worried about miscalculation as I am about actions and intent. And norms may help you understand that, hey, my friends and allies agree with me, which they usually do anyway. And most of those countries that have signed on to norms, such as the ASAT kinetic test ban concept, don't even have counter space capabilities to begin with to threaten anybody. So it's more of a principle principle. Than it is a capability or a capacity to actively defend oneself. So they're important, they're great, but you don't want to rely on them for your security.
1: You know, the second mention of space was on page twenty-two under integrated defense. And what I found so odd was that space systems are the spinal cord for anything integrated, whether they be domains like sea or cyber, regions to allies and partners, and yet you know there was just one word, just just one in that section. And it's pretty obvious that space is a critical mean, a, a mean of means to achieve an end. Yet, and am I wrong in feeling like space is getting short shrift here?
0: Yeah, um, I, I could see where you might come away with that. the The thing about integrated deterrence is, to me, it's a lot like the concept of multi-domain and uh, cross-domain operations. They it's a term used in in policy circles to make something look like a new concept that is in reality just an acknowledgement that we don't have enough of everything that we need. And so we're going to try to repackage it in a different way with a new with a new term that makes it sound like we're on top of things. And in reality, when it comes to space from a deterrent standpoint, The way that the current administration's NSS, the National Security Strategy, looks at protecting and defending is through resilient architectures, which means it's able to take a hit and still provide at least some, uh, if not most, of its terrestrial support and enabling capabilities. Nowhere in the document does it discuss counter space or anti-satellite weapon systems or ways that are necessary or means that are necessary to actively defend or deter attack. And if you wanna have a deterrent in space, if you look at the Chinese own writings, you have to have the ability to negate space capabilities of the adversary and prevent them, or as as a denial, a true denial would be, prevent them from hitting your stuff. And that means you have to have the capabilities to rapidly maneuver, which we don't have currently, you have without without negatively impacting lifespan, and you have to have the ability to have the weapon systems, kinetic and non-kinetic, to be able to create the effects to mitigate or prevent the attack from being successful. And if you look at the paragraph on space, their idea of protection and defense and deterrence is all predicated on resiliency norms and um, space governance uh, agreements, and the Chinese are. Maybe, you know, engage in those discussions at the UN level, but their actions and their their force design, as is being seen and demonstrated even recently with their recent missile defense test, which is essentially um, has an ASAC capability as well, that they're not really interested in that. And in fact, one of the main resiliency architectures that they're looking at, if you look at our documentation, is something called proliferated LEO or proliferated low Earth orbit. So for missile warning and tracking for satellite communication transport layer, as it's called, the Space Force is looking at trying to create resiliency by having a lot of numbers. So the the more satellites you have, rather than having as General Height used to call fat, juicy targets that are small constellations of five or six, you're going to create hundreds, um, at least dozens to hundreds in low Earth orbit, various altitudes. And that makes it harder for them to shoot and create the effect. In reality, the Chinese have been publishing papers, even in public, that state that they already are working on a way to deny that being an effective means of resiliency by building a big, uh, a deep magazine of anti-satellite missiles and doing a multi-layered attack architecture using reversible and irreversible capabilities to what they call system destruction. So taking out the whole system as a whole with a combination of reversible jammers, cyber attacks and missile shots, maybe even some lasers and high powered microwaves. They want to have the ability to vertically escalate to have space dominance and they're moving out on that. And we're still um, approaching the problem as if it was 20 years ago and these things haven't been deployed. And so I think that is something that needs to be thought of when you're looking at deterrence. And not just rely upon air, land, and sea capabilities to negate issues, where we're, where there is no precedent for us doing that because space has been attacked almost on a daily basis from a reversible side, as General Thompson has mentioned, as well as we've seen demonstrations of of satellite uh, hit to kill uh, over the last several years. And you know we we haven't really changed much in that respect. So we need to have a true deterrent, and to do that requires us to build weapon systems. And we're not really going that path in a in a rapid enough fashion, at least.
1: How does the national security strategy affect the national defense strategy? And very specifically, obviously, I'm talking about space.
0: Well, usually um, in a normal world, the national security strategy would come out first and that would inform the National Defense Strategy, which then would inform the National Military Strategy. Each of those are written by different levels of the defense architecture. So the National Military Strategy is written by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs staff. The National Defense Strategy usually comes out of the Office of Secretary of Defense. And the National Security Strategy typically comes out of the White House via the National Security Council staff. So when when you see all these going on typically they're all going on simultaneously so over the last year and a half of the Biden administration they've been conducting posture reviews of the various military mission sets missile defense nuclear posture space um and uh, you know others and those reviews end up informing the national defense strategy and the national military strategy the strat the security strategy Um, In many ways, it's sort of a a policy document um, in the sense that it provides the overarching guidance. So the national security strategy is essentially a a more fuller view of the Biden administration's interim guidance they they sent out in their first year and the uh, space priorities framework that came out late last year also. And so as we approach the end of the second year in office, this is the first that will probably lead to the development of the other two. And in space, obviously, you're seeing that their priorities are on norms, governance, securing the, the environment of space from debris, miscalculation and things of that sort, and protecting and defending through resiliency and not so much on space superiority uh, or space dominance, which is the the object of the Chinese, which if you look at those two strategies together, um, it's a pretty huge mismatch between priorities. And so while they say they they rightly, you know, talk about the credible military that is required for integrated deterrence, it seems like it doesn't really apply to the Space Force because they seem to view Space Force as an enabler of the military and not as a military armed force on its own right. And I and I find that interesting.
1: So, let me ask you this. Because it doesn't say dominance in the document. Mm-hmm. Is there room, however, to pursue that anyway because it doesn't outright say not to
0: well, I would just say from from experience of observing the folks that are that are running the national security teams in the Biden administration, a lot of them are are folks that had a lot of play in the Obama administration. And if you look at the Obama administration's uh, viewpoints in their national security space strategy, and other national security strategies of that time, and you compare it with the Biden administration's national security strategy and space documents, you see a lot of similarities. In fact, it's pretty much the same, with the exception of that they they are acknowledging some of the things the Trump administration acknowledged and the late Obama administration acknowledged, which is, you know, the Chinese have created a a war fighting domain. Now, the current administration is kind of walking back the term warfighting and going back to the old contested domain phraseology, which to them is a little softer. Um, They are spending a lot more time in words, at least uh, in documents, speaking to international norms and governance and regulations and policies and things of that sort, which the Trump administration was engaged in, the Obama administration was engaged in. But they seem to kind of have retrograded back to the idea that that norms and resilience, as they say in the document, they aim to protect the interests in space, avoid destabilizing arms races, and responsible steward the environment. So one other thing I will mention that I didn't mention earlier that's different than the Trump administration, to kind of counter Adam Smith's comment, is the push for arms control. And so whereas the Trump administration was trying to get caught up in address the threat posed by China and Russia's actively deployed space forces, counter space space forces, um, by providing capabilities and capacity to do so beyond just reversible jammers and try to meet them where they are. This national security strategy and a lot of the the, the test bans and things that you've seen come out of the National Space Council are are looking at more of a a, a arms control or a disarmament approach um, to trying to shape the, the the space um, space strategy world, and um, I think a lot of that ship has sailed uh, when it comes to the the prevention of arms because they're already there, and uh, they're they're testing in orbit now. As we've seen in in defense uh, policy board met last month to discuss space to ground weapons that the Chinese have actively demonstrated with hypersonic glide vehicles on top that could carry conventional or nuclear weapons into orbit and then to a target on Earth, uh, the fractional orbital bombardment system, as we talked about, I think, on another podcast. And mm-hmm. the Russians have experienced doing the same thing. So not only are they doing in space and from Earth to space, they now have the ability to do space to ground. Um, and when they deploy that actively, you know, they they haven't said, they haven't shared but the point is, is they've, they've demonstrated a will, a capability, and intent, which are the three main features of an active deterrent. Um, and currently norms, resilience, and arms control are the three counter proposals that the current strategy seems to be pointing on how to address that. And when you have a more aggressive adversary like the Chinese are. Um, on Earth, and you can see that they they have similar paths in space, um, and they want to undermine the U.S. international order, one would think that since this strategy mentions the U.N. charter, which actively talks about sovereignty of nations and self-defense and having armed forces, you need to have a space force that is treated as an armed force and not as a support and enabler, um, and part of that credible military that is so important to having an actual deterrent. So I think that is something that also needs to be be noted.
1: I'd like to Sort of dive into that just a little bit more deeply because when you look at the past of the United States and arms control, and you know, when it was negotiating arms control treaties with the peer at the time, which was the Soviet Union, the United States was coming to those negotiations from a point of strength, from from basically being the best at. And I'm just kind of wondering. Is there a will to be the best step? Because it's kind of like negotiating from below as opposed to negotiating from being at the top of your game. Or am I just seeing that wrong?
0: No, no, I think you're seeing that accurately. You know, the, the, the historical analogy that that you mentioned is is an interesting one because this, when we were negotiating salt in the 70s and start in the 80s and not really 90s, we, we were either coming from a, a point of parity um, supposedly, and some would argue we weren't, but um from a point of parity or early on in the 60s, we had a, a margin of superiority when it came to nuclear weapons and and deterrent forces and things of that sort. As well as as well as in, in the technological, you know, superiority capability. We we definitely had higher-end stuff and we focus on not trying to, you know, carbon copy everything and have a better version that the Soviets were doing, but we were trying to find the areas of vulnerability that could be exploited with our technological advantages and we we did that and it worked out well but we negotiated from a position of strength especially in the 80s um a lot of people and even some recent reports that have come out from other think tanks have argued that the reason why the chinese and russians are are doing what they're doing in space with with killer satellites space to ground weapons um, Ground to space attack systems is because uh, we we pulled out of ABM treaty and things of that sort. Which in reality, that's that's an incomplete picture at best and inaccurate at worst. The the so the Soviet Union and the Russians now, you know, started violating treaties such as the INF treaty, which is why we pulled out of that one um because they were de- you know deploying weapons that violated that missile range of nuclear capability they were violating conventional forces in europe which we obviously see that happening in ukraine and in uh in georgia earlier on and so as a result you know a, a treaty is a two-way street and if if one, if one party is not buying into it the treaty is essentially dead so <clears throat> when it comes to when it comes to that, you know, we have to come from a period of strength and the Chinese understand strength. They, they view that they view one of the, the, the areas that a lot of people have been promoting with regard to negotiations um, on the American side, which is transparency and confidence building measures, as they're called, as a point of weakness. You always want to come out ahead in a Chinese negotiation, whereas from an American perspective, we like to do the win-win approach where everybody walks away with something that they're happy with. And that we're both on the even playing field and the Chinese, even in business negotiations, don't approach negotiations from that standpoint. They, they want to be the dominant player. They want to come out on top. And so the fact that you have people that have advocated since 2010 during the first Obama administration in academia, think tanks, and even in the administration, that a a position of mutual vulnerability, as it was called, um, is somehow a path to peace and security. Of our resources and our, our ability to access space is, is really hard to connect with an adversary like the Chinese in particular, who uh, who view strength as something of importance to have, both coming into a negotiation and coming out of one.
1: So if we were to look for a position of strength and or superiority to to be able to do arms control in space, and to actually maybe you know create the means to the ends that the Biden administration is speaking about in the mm-hmm. national security strategy, what kind of means are are needed?
0: Well, in in my opinion, I would say that before you engage in any arms control, anything whether it's a test ban or it's a or or a arms arms reduction or a prohibition or anything of that sort, that you have to at least make yourself equal in capacity and capability so that means that areas that we have tried to be the good example of for decades which is we may have tested um, kinetic interceptors once or twice over time or modified uh, missile systems like the burnt frost in 08 taking out a a errant satellite with an Aegis destroyer missile you know that demonstrates a technological ability to do something but that doesn't provide a deterrent. It just means, look, we can do something. Um, and there's a lot of technological things that we've demonstrated that we've never fielded. And so because of that, you know, you, you go to war or you go to a crisis with the military that you have in the field. And just saying we have a technological capacity that is not ready to be used is pretty much a non-thing. a non a non-thing. So um, I would say we have to at least be at, at, at a parity to have what's called a a first-strike stability, as some have called it. Right now, we're in an instability, whereas the Chinese have the ability to hit us with, with kinetics. Again, we have the technology to do so, but we don't have mm-hmm. a, a, a capability really to do that. Our last deployed ASAC capability was a um, modified Thor missile system in at Johnston Island in the South Pacific that was meant to be a counter to the FOBs that the Soviets had. But that was negated in 1975, or ended rather, because they wanted to get away from a nuclear-tipped ASAT to a conventional ASAT. And because we just decided policy-wise to restrain ourselves from going in that direction in a fielded capacity, um, and in the 90s, we we even ceased all testing and just, we didn't need it, so why bother? That led to a a vulnerability to exploit on the part of our adversaries, and they've seen that. And so now they're building that. The other thing I will mention is, is people will bring up the treaties that have been placed by the Russians and Chinese over the years, such as the PPWT, the Prevention of Placement of Weapons in Space, and the PEROS, or the Prevention of an Arms Race in Outer Space, that have been constantly re redone and reapplied at the UN over the years. The thing that people will say is, you know, none of those treaties really have good verification uh, capability. So in other words, um, what is a space weapon, number one, and people like to use that as a means of of kind of blowing it off. The other thing is, is that it doesn't speak to ground to space weapons. And so as a result, you're seeing the Chinese develop those more rapidly and testing their in space and their space to ground. And so because of that, you know, I it's very difficult for me to see any negotiation for any arms control, be successful uh, in a balanced way, in a fair way, as we are now. I, I I just think that it's not the right time to do arms control agreements. Um, I think that we're already in a weak, vulnerable state. They see that. They've they've written it as that way, in space. And I think we need to get our 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 security of our stuff in space. As the primary problem set, and work the second, third-order impact of a kinetic exchange in space—the debris and the environmental stuff—that's fine, but that's not the main problem. The main problem is the U.S. has a proverbial gun to its head in space, and the the Chinese are looking to push that out and their presence further out into space from a commercial, economic, and civil exploration standpoint as well. And we gotta we gotta work all these angles, and we can't just assume that a norm or an arms control treaty will will fix the problem by itself.
1: Chris, thank you so much for your time.
0: Thank you. Appreciate it.
1: That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the down link on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian, and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening.